Welcome to season two of The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. We're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. This season, we're coming at you with six weekly episodes, and the theme for this season is The Revolution Begins at Home. Now, to start off, I just want to restate some of the core tenets of The Double Shift. This show is not and will never be a show about parenting or kids. We are not here to give you tips and tricks about how to juggle your busy schedule. And we don't believe there's any way to life hack our way out of the enormous problems that mothers face in this country, like deeply unequal and unfair family leave policies, the astronomical cost of childcare, and the fact that the wage gap between men and women is more accurately a wage gap between mothers and everybody else. We need to think big about all of this stuff. So with all of these social and economic issues facing mothers, why do we want to talk about reimagining our personal lives? Because here at The Double Shift, we believe the revolution at work begins with the revolution at home. Women can't advance in society if our relationships are stuck in the past. That families don't have to be conventional to be successful. And that support for parents can come from the most unexpected places. And communities can be key to getting us to where we, as working mothers, hope to go. This season, you'll hear conversations about the huge, boundary-breaking, and sometimes uncomfortable changes moms have made to reshape their lives. We're going to tackle the mental load. You'll hear from a mother without custody of her kids who believes she's a better mother for it two excitingly unconventional families in Canada, and a transgender parent who'll explode your gender stereotypes, and much more. We're going to challenge the pretty strong assumption that the nuclear family is the best deal out there for working moms, and we're really going to question what we're told motherhood should be. This is season two of The Double Shift. The revolution begins at home. Today's story is about what kind of support and community it can take to realize your college dreams and find your way to a meaningful career when you're already a mom, and in spite of huge personal and financial obstacles. Meet Maria Ramirez. Hi, Catherine. How are you? We're going to begin this episode all the way back in 2007, when Maria was 17 years old. She went to a big public high school in Indianapolis, known for churning out NBA basketball players. But Maria wasn't a basketball star, she was an academic superstar. She was killing it in all her classes, a leader at the school, and in the National Honor Society. By winter of her senior year, everything was on track for her. She had a boyfriend, but he planned to join the Army, and Maria didn't think they'd stay together after graduation. She'd applied to a bunch of prestigious East Coast colleges, including her dream school, Harvard, and was just waiting to hear back. About two weeks before everyone started receiving their college acceptance letters, I found out I was pregnant. And it was a complete shock to me because I had no idea of how it could have possibly, I mean, I knew how it could have happened, but um, I didn't think that it would happen to me. And I immediately thought that all my dreams would be deferred. I didn't see how I would manage to go away to college. I didn't see how I would manage to move to New York or to Boston or one of these other places that was a lot more exciting. 
My favorite teacher, my architectural technology teacher that I had, I was like on a first name basis with him and I was like an unofficial TA for his class. I would help grade other people's assignments because I was so good at using AutoCAD and um, he would like rely on me for a lot of things and he saw you know, so much potential in me. He would tell me all the time, you're gonna do so great. You're gonna be this big shot architect. And when I, you know, explained to him that I was pregnant, he just like kind of put his head down on his desk and he said, <sighs> not you. Now that Maria was pregnant, she had to figure out what might be next for her. A bunch of college acceptance letters had already rolled in. Maria had always assumed she'd go to college for four years and then take on the world. And her goal was not just any college. She had her heart set on Harvard. But when the letter finally came, Maria let it just sit on the dining room table. It's funny, till this day, I have not opened that letter that came from Harvard. <gasps> I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I knew I couldn't go. But all of my friends around me were like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to IU, which was in Bloomington and about two and a half hours from where we lived at the time. And I knew I just couldn't move outside of Indianapolis because that's where the support was. But the feelings, there were so many. I always saw myself as a mom because I'm the oldest sibling of five. So I always took care of my younger siblings. But the feelings at the time were disappointment that it happened at the time that it did. And also I felt maybe that I was disappointing people in my family because my mom was also a teen mom. And I think that she spent so much of her life struggling that she didn't want that for me. And I think that she automatically saw that I would have this life of a single mom. And I think she could see the signs that the relationship that I was in was not going to last. And I didn't want to be a single mom, but I also knew I didn't want to be with him. So that was like very, very challenging for me to navigate as a 17 year old. So you're getting these acceptance letters and you know that in your heart, you, you want to be a mom someday, that that was always the plan. Was there ever a conversation in your mind, like whether you wanted to have this baby? Yeah. So honestly, the reason why I didn't want to terminate the pregnancy, and it had nothing to do with like morality or religion or anything like that, because I think that's most often the case, I think, for women that decide not to go that route is either financial or maybe religious or moral reasons and things that people have told them what's right and wrong. I just wanted the challenge and I always assumed that I could do it because I saw my mom do it. I didn't see becoming a mom as like the end of my life as a 17-year-old. I just saw it as maybe a small delay in getting to where I wanted to go. You were occupying these two sort of really different spheres, like you were this superstar academic person as one part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And then you were also headed to being a teen mom in this other part of your identity. Mm -hmm. How did it feel like the people around you viewed you in these different roles? So a part of me as a Black girl growing up in the community that I grew up in, I always felt like the exception. I was always told that, you know, you have to work twice as hard to prove that you're just as capable as your white peers. So I always had that in the back of my mind as I got straight A's, as I joined all these committees and councils and things as a teenager, that I was an exception. Uh, I was like this different Black girl, right? And the stereotypical 
teen mom is usually a girl of color. So I felt like me navigating these two different identities, I became a part of the statistic. I became just a regular black girl as opposed to this exceptional one that has this really great GPA and, you know, is on first name basis with the principal and things like that. I definitely felt that disappointment from teachers, from the principal, from, you know, family members of like you were our exception and you were our, you know, pride, you know, of the family and now you've just become like the rest of us. One of my favorite people of all time that I'm super close to is my grandmother. My father passed away when I was six years old and she stepped in and kind of kept the memory of him alive. And she came to my high school graduation. She traveled all the way from Florida to be there. And I hadn't told her that I was pregnant because I was honestly just nervous and afraid um, to say anything to her about it. And it was still very new still. I was only a few months along, but I think my mom had a conversation with her before she got there. And uh, I think I was styling my hair or something and she pulled me aside and she said, I know, and this isn't what I wanted for you, but I know that you can do it. But I could just hear it, you know, in her tone, I could see it in her face, the disappointment and, you know, that hurt. And I took that as motivation to just really succeed and just to show everyone that I'm still exceptional, that I still am capable of everything that I set out to do, even with the baby. Despite having some reservations about him, Maria decided to try to make a relationship work with her daughter's father. When it was time for Maria's daughter, Amaya, to be born in November 2007, things did not go well. In fact, they went really, really badly. A failed induction led to an emergency C-section. Because of that surgery, I had an infection and I still got even more ill. I had an allergic reaction to the antibiotics that they gave me. The doctor pulled my partner aside at the time and said, I mean, are you prepared to take care of this baby by yourself? And so they weren't even sure that I would survive um, the childbirth. And I did, obviously I'm here. <laughs> and the baby was perfectly healthy and she everything was fine. But what I think of motherhood now is being able to like nurse and breastfeed your child and having that connection, taking time off, staying home with them for six or eight weeks or more. I didn't have any of that with Amaya. I wasn't able to nurse her because she wouldn't latch on. and. It's a stigma. I think it's definitely a stigma in the Black community about nursing as opposed to bottle feeding or formula feeding. So it just wasn't pressed upon me to try and to keep trying. So I just never nursed her. And I also realized much later that I struggled from postpartum depression. Within a, a few weeks of leaving the hospital, I noticed the symptoms, but there's also another stigma in the Black community about mental health, especially women. and you know, having to be perceived as super strong and infallible um, because of single motherhood. And even though I wasn't technically a single mom when I left the hospital, it felt like that. And the relationship with my partner was very tumultuous, even, you know, within a few months after delivery. And so the stress of that, it didn't lend to a very positive new motherhood experience for me. And till this day, I find it very difficult to remember a lot of the first year of Amaya's life. I don't remember her first steps. I don't remember her first words. Um, I don't remember the first time she gave me a hug or had solid food. All of those things I think are repressed memories because they're just tangled up in all the trauma from that time. Wow. So it sounds like you had 
such a such a rough start and so many things working against you a near death experience postpartum depression being very young and also having this really difficult relationship with all of these things going on what were you sort of trying to get going at that point so i was planning on starting full-time study for the spring semester in january and amaya was born in november so in that in-between period of graduating high school and starting college i took on you know like a full-time retail position and i worked at one of those big box retail stores and it wasn't necessarily explained to me what benefits i had as a mom and i remember needing to take time off obviously when i worked up till a few days before i gave birth so i didn't take any time off before i delivered um and i remember after having the baby being told that i had to start my position within a certain period of time after i left or my position would be given away and i stayed with her for 3 weeks and i went into the office to you know figure out how i could get you know put back on the schedule again and start working again and i was told that a position wasn't waiting for me so Maria was stressed over having no income, had undiagnosed symptoms of postpartum depression, and she felt like she needed to stay committed to a very unstable home life with her daughter's father. It seemed as though to kind of prove those people wrong that thought that my life would, you know, become a disaster. I had to stay in this, you know, nuclear family structure just to prove that we were going to make it and that it was going to be okay. So I didn't want to move back in with my mom. I didn't want to have that narrative for myself. When her daughter was just two months old, Maria enrolled for the spring semester at a local college, thinking it would be nothing she couldn't handle. I'd always been a star student, but no one explained to me what a first-generation student was. And my mother, being a single mom, by the time I started school, hadn't finished her undergraduate degree. Uh, she was still enrolled at a school, and my father passed away when I was young. So I didn't really have an example that I could use of, like, you know, what it means to be a college student and how to navigate, you know, filling out the FAFSA, what it means for financial aid. And so there's another piece of that of like getting all these loans and, you know, needing money. And that was my only source of income was a like a, a federal loan. I didn't even have some like the advisor that I supposedly had never really reached out to me, didn't understand my unique circumstance as a student and didn't, you know, explain to me the consequences of not being able to go to class. And I just assume like, OK, if I don't show up, then they'll know that I'm not a student there anymore. But that's not the case. So I had started working full time halfway through the semester and I just didn't have the time in the day to go to class anymore. And I just stopped going. And I didn't know the consequences of that. And the consequences were that I have Fs and Ds on my transcript, which was such a shock to me when I you know, learned that later on, because I'd never seen anything less than like a B plus on my report card in my entire life. So at this point, Maria was working full time at a marketing firm and failing out of college. Maria certainly isn't the only student to have faced big challenges in getting to graduation. Recent data shows 2.1 million undergrads in the U.S. are single mothers. 40% of undergrads in this country suffer from food insecurity, 
and 56% have unstable housing situations. And the kind of pressure Maria was under, trying to basically stay out of poverty, go to school, and support a baby, was intense. Maria was ready to make some really big life changes. And to do that, she found some help in unexpected places, including a rare college program designed to support single mothers. We'll be right back. I'm here with senior producer Rachel McCarthy. Rachel, have you been enjoying those tasty smoothies I've been sharing with you in the morning? Oh my goodness, Catherine, I love them. I have been using superfood blends from Your Super in our smoothies. They are on a mission to improve people's health with the power of super plants. I have definitely been more focused on my nutrition lately, and they make it easy for you to get the nutrients your body needs to thrive, and it's the easiest and most delicious way to get more fruit and veggies in. Your Super's functional superfood and plant protein mixes are made from naturally dried, organic, whole foods. No fillers or sweeteners. I think my favorite was the skinny protein one because I like mixing it with some frozen fruit, peanut butter, banana, yogurt. Such a good start to the day. I remember that one. It was delicious. Double Shift listeners can get the cleanest superfood and plant protein around at yoursuper.com. That's Y-O-U-R super.com. Get 15% off your order when you use the code DOUBLESHIFT at checkout. Just go to yoursuper.com and don't forget to get 15% off with the promo code DOUBLESHIFT, one word, at checkout. So, senior producer Rachel McCarthy, did you know that in addition to being a world-famous podcast host, I am also a small business owner? I did know that. The Double Shift is actually a small business, and that's how you pay me and the other people who work on the show. Because I run a small company, I am so excited that HoneyBook is advertising with us. It's an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. They can even consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, and MailChimp Gmail. Their interface is really easy and intuitive to use. There are so many moms who are freelancers and run small businesses, and we need these great business services like HoneyBook so we can all spend less time on admin and more time doing what we love. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash doubleshift. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. 50%. That's a great deal. I know. It's such a good deal. I really hope listeners jump on this. Go to honeybook.com slash doubleshift, one word, for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash doubleshift for 50% off. And we're back. At this point in our story, Maria Ramirez is a teen mom who got pregnant and gave up her dreams of going to Harvard. But Maria didn't give up on college. She enrolled in classes in her hometown in Indianapolis while working full-time and trying to salvage a toxic relationship with her daughter's father. I was the breadwinner in the relationship at this point, and I was working full-time, and I was going to night class, and 
I finished my class. The class was over at like 9.30 p.m. And I hadn't seen my daughter all day. And the car that I purchased, he was using it for some purpose. And I said, okay, just please be here by 9.30 to pick me up so I can get home. And he didn't show up until like 10.30 p.m. And it was raining and it was dark. And I told myself in that moment, if he can't even pick me up in my own car, you know, by the time I, I leave class, then like, what value does this relationship have to my life? Maria realized this nuclear family thing wasn't working out for her, personally or financially. She had an entry-level job at a marketing firm, but it closed suddenly due to the recession, stiffing her and her coworkers their last paycheck. Her job prospects were at a dead end. And that was the realization to me that I needed to go full-time to school to get it done because I no longer wanted to be at the mercy of these type of companies that, you know, hire people that aren't college educated and just be, you know, dispensable. And I wanted to have a career, not a job. In order to make that happen, she'd need more support. She broke up with Amaya's father and moved to Florida to live with her grandmother. Maria was granted full custody. Living with her grandmother provided her with so many things she needed. No more stress from a difficult relationship. And moving in with her grandma meant a much lower cost of living situation and a trusted family member to watch Amaya while she went to class. Since Maria no longer had as many bills, she didn't need to work full time. She could actually focus on being a student at a local community college. I was allowed to kind of return to my old self again. I joined an honor society, Phi Theta Kappa. I was able to work internships and do part-time jobs that were actually relevant to my field of study or what I was interested in. I was more engaged on campus with professors, but I was also able to free up a lot of time to spend more time with my daughter. We were able to go to the beach and you know do uh, mother-daughter things that I previously didn't have the time to do. And my grandmother also, whether she realizes it or not, she provided a lot of peace of mind to me on an emotional level as well. Although Maria was really happy in her life in Florida, she wanted to relocate to the Northeast to be closer to Manny, her best friend turned boyfriend, who she'd started a long-distance relationship with. But she was clear she did not want to give up her educational ambitions for a guy. She finished her associate's degree in Florida, and Maria knew if she ever was going to get to her next goal of completing her bachelor's degree, she was going to still need some real help getting there. She found out about a residential program for unmarried women with children at Misericordia University, a Catholic school in rural Pennsylvania. The program, which is part of the larger university, has been around since 2000, and its goal is to remove those big obstacles like finances or abusive relationships that stop many single moms from graduating from college. They provide scholarships, financial aid, free housing, food subsidies, and childcare that costs only $5 to $10 a week, so moms can really focus on school and really get the experience of being more like a traditional college student along with a community of other moms who are going through the same thing. And it works. The program at Misericordia has an astonishing 90% retention rate. And since 2013, 80% of the graduates go on to get master's degrees. But it's not easy to get in. Misericordia only has 16 student spots for moms at a time. 
and there are only eight programs like this in the whole country. When a spot opened up in 2012, Maria jumped on the chance to go. Even though Maria and her cohort embraced their more traditional student life, they also stood out. For a lot of us, we were the only women of color on campus because this this campus is in like like a rural area in Pennsylvania. And so we had to be prepared for how the students in our classrooms would perceive us because oftentimes the only time they saw other students of color were because they were in the Women with Children program. So they just made the connection that all Black women students were student moms. And we got a lot of that discrimination, I think, from other students that just didn't know better. But the one thing that we all had in common, I think, is that we just didn't want to have that narrative of like a single mom always having to be helped by someone and not being self-sufficient at all. And like economic self-sufficiency is what we all wanted for ourselves. We didn't want to rely on child support or government assistance to take care of ourselves. And education was a way we, we saw that we could change that. You talked about this sort of community of moms who had different backgrounds who had all come together at Misericordia, but you also created a community to support each other. Can you tell me a little bit about what that looked like and the dynamic there of wanting to be independent, but also really trying to lift each other up? So with any living situation with adult women, it's going to be challenging. So there was always a transition period as we were getting to know each other and and learning, you know, how to communicate with each other. There's always differences in how we discipline our children, for example. But the thing that was so beautiful about, you know, the residential experience and living with these women is that we could all help each other in ways that we didn't know that we needed. For example, if your babysitter cancels on you and you need to go to class, there's three other moms in the house that can look after your son for you or your daughter for you while you go to class. If you run out of your food stamps, because most, if not all of us, were on public assistance while we were also in the program, if you run out and you really need to get peanut butter or you know eggs or something like that for your picky eater you know that there's someone else that can lend that to you and help you out until you can get in a better position if you need a tutoring help and you're like a little uh, embarrassed or ashamed or something like that about it because of your non-traditional status there are plenty other women in the house with you that may have already taken the class or may understand what you're going through it can definitely help you out so not only did we have like those physical needs covered by each other, but like, you know, tutoring and academic support and then also emotional needs. Like sometimes you just need to vent and talk to someone that can understand what it means to fight with your ex about paying, you know, for this or that or visitation. We all had some sort of trauma that we were healing from and it made such a difference to be in a community of women that were going through very similar things that can be there for you when maybe you just needed to cry. Maybe you just, you know, needed to scream. And we all understood each other. Maria feels that all of the support Misericordia provided was crucial to getting to her degree. Maria graduated with her bachelor's in 2014. A week before the ceremony, her boyfriend Manny proposed, Maria delightfully accepted, and she and Amaya moved in with him in New Jersey. They got married. Maria became a paralegal and explored if she wanted to go to law school to become a civil rights attorney. But after talking with lawyers who were also moms, she thought that road might not be a great fit for her and what she hoped for her family life. So she decided to pursue a master's degree in education. 
she got into a three-year program at New York University that allowed her to continue to work while Manny worked full-time as an accountant. So I was in the program for a year, and by the following year, I found out I was pregnant again. (laughs) But this time, the feelings were completely different. Instead of, you know, disappointment or anxiety or stress, I felt just complete joy. I didn't have to worry about where money was going to come from. I didn't have to worry about my health care. I had access to resources where I could research, you know, how to be a working mom while nursing and things like that. I had the resources to stay home a little bit longer and develop a bond with him. I was in a loving and positive and affirming relationship. It's just, it, it was almost like a 180. My experiences, my pregnancies were so very different. And that translates into very different experiences for childbirth and for motherhood as well. I'm realizing now, as I'm mothering my son, how different it is now than it was 11 years ago. I'm realizing that I'm happier. I have a better connection with him. I'm, you know, more patient with him. And that could come with, you know, just me being older also. But I think it has a lot to do with I'm not going through any trauma. I'm not going through significant stress. I mean, going through grad school with, you know, being pregnant and having a baby is stressful, but it wasn't to the point where I had to, you know, forego a meal in order to feed him or something like that, like I had to experience with Amaya. I didn't have to make a decision to choose between myself and this idea of what people expected out of me. So much pressure was removed from me. And I remember every little thing. I probably have something like 3,000 pictures of this baby already. And now it's like, I'm a different person. I'm a new person because I've healed. So with your daughter, you were a young single mom. And with your son, you were a married mom who was financially stable in a a more middle class and conventional uh, setup. Did you feel like you were treated differently by people around you? One of the biggest differences, aside from my age, was the the way that doctors and medical professionals interacted with me. So when I was 17 and 18 and going through maternity care, it was almost like I wasn't in the room. Like sometimes they would speak directly to my mother and not speak to me. I felt like some decisions were made without really consulting me. And I also am being treated very differently by the family. My grandmother that, you know, had expressed some level of disappointment as a teenager and in her own way was just over the moon excited. And she actually came to stay with me for two whole weeks while I was pregnant and and leading up to the birth of the baby. And so it was just very different. It almost seemed like I got more support from people when I had more stability than when I was more unstable. So what's the parenting and sort of work dynamic like now in your relationship with your husband? Right. So when I was a single mom, I thought that I still had that mentality of I've had to work twice as hard just to prove that I can do the same job as everyone else, regardless of my status as a single mom and things like that. But now I have no desire to miss time with my children. 
I leave at 4.45 every day just to make sure that I can get on an earlier train to spend that extra 15 minutes with them. And I make sure that, you know, my supervisor and the people that I work with understand that my family comes first. When I was a teenager, I didn't have that luxury. I couldn't tell my boss, I'm leaving 15 minutes early to be with my kids, or I felt like I was in that I would put my job in jeopardy. And being married is also a different level of support that I didn't feel before. I needed a lot of security and when I was 17 and I didn't have it and now I do have that security. Not that I you know my husband is responsible for me or anything like that, but it's more of the emotional support, knowing that there's someone that I can rely on every day that you know I can unload on if I'm frustrated or stressed or tired. I don't have to internalize all of those things. I don't have to keep them to myself. I don't have to put on a brave face. I don't have to pretend that, you know, I'm super strong or stronger than everyone else. I can be vulnerable. I can need help. And I know that I have someone that will support me. And I didn't believe those things when I was 17. So it sounds like you have a very strong basis of emotional support in your relationship with your husband. But after so many years of doing everything on your own, do you ever have a hard time letting him do sort of his share of the parenting or his share of the care? Absolutely. So while I was in grad school, all of my classes happened like at 4.55 or 5 p.m. You know, I work up until that minute. And so I needed to rely on my husband to go and pick up the kids from school and from daycare and stay home with them and prepare dinner on those nights that I had class. And I usually had class two nights a week during the semester. And it was so difficult for me to like allow him to do what he wanted for dinner, for example. Like I would always try to meal prep or put all the ingredients out for dinner for that day. And he'd be like, I'm just going to order pizza or I'm going to make chicken nuggets. And I'm like, no, all of these things are already here for you. So it was difficult for me to not be in control of like even how the family eats when I'm not even in the house. Um, So just letting him do what was easier for him was very difficult for me to let go of. And things like discipline, like if my daughter did something that we needed to have a discussion with her about, if, you know, something happened at school and we needed to talk to her, there needs to be a disciplinary action. I always wanted to be a part of the conversation. I always want to be there to talk to her with him. And so I had to learn that sometimes his approach and talking with her is better than mine. So in some ways, the hardest person of of all the people that you've um, accepted help from or needed support from, the hardest person to accept the, the support from is your husband. Absolutely. I don't even like it if, like, he wants to take my car for an oil change. I'm like, oh, I got it. I can take care of it. Maria has graduated from her master's program and is now a senior student advisor at NYU. She works with all kinds of grad students, including non-traditional students, underrepresented students, military students, and student parents to help them realize their goals regardless of circumstances. She lives with Manny, Amaya, who's now 12, and her son, EJ, who's two, in New Jersey. So going back to the beginning of Maria's story in 2007, did you feel like it was a little bit of a cliffhanger about what the letter from Harvard actually said? Me too. I couldn't get that image out of my mind of the letter sitting unopened, as Maria figured out what she was going to do with her life at this pivotal moment. 
And while Maria thought she got into Harvard, she realized, as we discussed it later, that she never really knew for sure one way or the other. So for our members-only bonus content this week, we are doing a little sleuthing with Maria to try to uncover if she actually got in. This is a fascinating conversation that you don't want to miss. To become a member of The Double Shift and get this bonus episode and other great content, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. So I want to share with you why our season theme, The Revolution Begins at Home, feels so relevant and timely to me personally. I am six months pregnant with twins. Bet you didn't see that plot twist coming. Trust me, neither did I. Later this season, I'll be sitting down with senior producer Rachel McCarthy to talk candidly about how this life development will change my own double shift and how I see it weaving together with the future of the double shift. Spoiler, I'm more committed than ever to the show. But if you have questions for me, ask me anything. Send us a voice memo, record it on your phone, and send it to us via email. We may use it on the podcast. Um, Just be sure to include your first name, where you live, and your question. Or just straight email us at askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. That's askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our editorial advisor is Amy Westervelt. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Audio mix by Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson and Lauren Smith Brody. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and you, our members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks for joining The Double Shift. <laughs>